This week in Revolt Black News, it's all about representation, black representation. Because representation isn't just about today, it's about tomorrow. Octavia Spencer once said, little kids need to be able to turn on their TV and see real world representations of themselves. So whether it be entertainment, sports, politics, or fashion, this channel right here will always be a mirror to the one that watches. As we move, you move. And as you move, we move. Because it's not just about seeing our reflections across different platforms or industries. It's about the power of seeing ourselves. There is incredible power in seeing a black woman ranked as the number one tennis player in the world. And this time, it's not even Serena Williams. See, that's the power of seeing beyond our reflection. That, y'all, is the power of representation. Welcome to Revolt Black News. I'm your host, Ebony K. Williams. Now, with today's episode being all about representation, it's imperative that we start the conversation with the tech space. Now, from our basic needs of our smartphones to our culture telling these companies what's cool or not, we have to start occupying all these spaces. Because otherwise, it's just another missed opportunity and missed bag for us, and they continue to profit off our culture. So joining me are two entrepreneurs that are changing the tech game. She is currently a founder, musician, and director at Visco. And welcome to the show, Siobhan Charles. And also joining me, we know and love him, y'all. Singer and founder of Raytronics and Raycon Global. Welcome to the show, Ray J. Hey, what's up? Thank you for having us. What's up? Absolutely. Okay, Ray J. Now, we all know you as uh, Mr. Wait a Minute. Um, hey. All your music and, and hey, uh, it's a bop. Uh, but, the, but that's how we know, know and love you. But the reality is you're doing big shit in technology, Ray J. Um, and I want to know why you chose to enter that space um, in such a full capacity. Well, I always try to target places that are about to explode. You know what I mean? Like right on the brinks of something that could be uh, just revolutionary, like electric transportation. I mean, when we tie, when we when we started our earbud company, it wasn't a lot of earbuds out. You know, it was maybe like one or two other people promoting and really marketing, and nobody had earbuds in in our price range. So I think it's just finding the products that people love that you have to use but also things that are original and that are game changers for the future. So Siobhan, you had quite an illustrious career at a very young age. Uh, tell us why you started uh, in the tech world to begin with. So my, my first sort of uh, entrance in the tech was at Google when I interned at Google. Being black in tech before it was cool to be black in tech at Twitter, that was my first official job um, when Twitter was a startup and I IPO'd with Twitter. Something I sort of immediately seen in going to Twitter was we run this platform so there has to be a business value for me here. There, there has to be need for, for my voice and perspective at this table, given our dominance on the platform. Yeah, black Twitter is king, right? And everybody knows that. And y'all are right. It's so crazy that we don't really um, have strong representation at all in this space. When I ask the questions, uh, why do I not see black folks in these spaces um, at these tech companies? Well, there's a skills gap. Can you speak about that, Siobhan? And is that a is that a myth? Is that a misnomer? And, and why are, is that the narrative? Yeah, it's such a cape and a cap, a, a double C. Um, I think you know, from a recruiting perspective, it's really easy to say we want to stay in our own ego chamber. We want to stay in our own echo chamber. We want to keep hiring people who look like us, who get us, who know our language. You get a lot of bros, and you get a lot of people who make a lot of excuses. Um, some companies are starting to do the work but there's a lot more work to be done. 
And then for the black young people like myself who are in tech and even looking at Ray J, looking at how intersectional tech is with entertainment, with music, with um, with fashion, with with the auto industry. If you look at Tesla, tech is the heart of it all. And we have to you know, establish what our bridge to it is because we're on it every day. We're spending our money on on these iPhones and these things. But, you know, what what is there to gain and how are we a part of? profitability and also mm-hmm. um, just a part of, of ownership in, versus being yes. on the consumer side. A lot of celebs put their name on, on things, on products, on brands and their figureheads and that's about it. But you're not like that um, in, in these bu- business dealings that you're doing here. You're very hands-on. As you said, you're the chief strategist um, in, in terms of the marketing space. Why is it important for you to actually be hands-on in this way and not just have your name on it? I just feel like I know how to do the job. Like I'm, I'm a killer at marketing. I'm, I'm addicted to this. All I do is wake up and think about tech or wake up and thinking about how I can find a way to change the future in a positive way every day, all day. You can see my team, they everywhere. They've been up longer than me. I've been up for eight days, which is not healthy, but this is like, this let me, yeah, let me tell you how I know. Let me tell you how I know that's true. Ray J is because the last time I saw you, we were in LA sitting down beside each other at the Revolt Summit, and you were talking my head off about these damn earbuds. Yeah. And I was like, I'm sitting here trying to have my Ciroc and chill, and you talking about these damn earbuds. But I respected it, because I, was, I said that to my, I was with my publicist. I was like, he is really on this shit deep. Mm, gotta and, be. Um, and it comes through, so you, you should be. know that. Thank yeah. you. I'm going to show y'all the Revolt bikes. Yeah, that's, that's, these the new Revolt bikes. Y'all ain't seen the Revolt? The, the Revolt bikes crazy. No, let me see Ooh. that. Oh, there you go. Oh, I, okay. I, don't, I want mine. I got go you. Go send that over here. You no, know, success comes go ahead and send it when over opportunity here. meets preparation. Yep. And God damn it, I'm prepared. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Siobhan, speaking of that, that's that's excellent segue here. Um, your big gig at Twitter that really put you on another level in this tech space uh, was a role that you created. And I love that. You, you became the head of global music and cultural communications. Now, you already told us that you really just took the marriages of your two expertise, put them together, and you made your own damn job. Talk a bit about that, because I think that applies again to every industry. You know, we don't have to sit back and wait for the, the, the post on LinkedIn, the opening to fill. Sometimes you got to create the opportunity. So talk about that. Yeah, I think a, a lot of sort of me going into the tech spaces are very much just about my state um, and going to Twitter and sort of just observing the space. I think even echoing Ray J and talking about the importance of listening and taking notes and sometimes watching the game from the corner of the bleachers and really, really being educated, going into any business, you've got to figure out what your value proposition is. And for me, Mm -hmm. um, blackness is a value proposition. It's a value proposition for all of us. Culture obviously is a no brainer for all of us, but me, me having been, you know, doing music forever and playing the flute and just being a part of the culture. Yeah. Yep. Nice. Yep, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So me doing That's that, cool. music, That's cool. first step was getting into the building and then kind of going from there and being really smart and strategic and also having mentors, um, having allies, because we need resources, we need funding, we need venture capital. We, we don't yeah. have that. So we have to acquire that in some sort of way. And it requires us being resourceful. So um, I'd say those were sort of my um, key, key tactics and just being resilient, not taking no for an answer. If you got to say no cap in a meeting after your idea, then then run it. They're going to respect anything that you have, especially if it's great. The more you're yourself, 
the more you're aggressively trying to learn and you're asking questions and you look at people in the eye and they can see you want to be here. And when you see somebody and, they, and they're telling you something and you don't know what they're talking about, ask them what are they talking about. Take the ego out. No, I don't. Yeah, I know I don't know. You're you like, you know those banks over there? Yeah, yeah I know those banks. Over. No, you don't. No, I don't know those banks. What, what are... <laughs> don't, you know, learn. Right. And I think the people that are yeah. on top, the more you ask them questions, the more they want to mentor you. In addition to all this business, all this dominance, you are still putting out music, which I love. Um, you got your new single, Hurt You, comes out tomorrow. Tell us about it. It's a, um, it's a love letter. But that's just the start. I'm going to just start dropping a lot of music. Before I, got, before I get to the other music, I got to get to the to the uh, love letter that kind of breaks down where I was, where I am, and where I'm trying to go. So I think it's for everybody out there that's been through a relationship. And you know there's, even if you've been hurt, you know you've played a part in hurting somebody, certain things that you've done. And so this is the, this isn't, it's not an I'm sorry. This is, I hope that I didn't hurt you enough for you not to be able to, to forgive me and love again. All right, Siobhan and Ray J, thank you both um, for dropping major gems and really making the tech world both better and blacker. We appreciate you. Now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about today's headlines. We've got more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. These are today's headlines. Now, while the officer who fatally shot Breonna Taylor has still not been arrested, the city of Louisville has settled with the Taylor family paying out $12 million for their wrongful death lawsuit. Here's the family's attorney, Ben Crump, at a news conference. And it is not just the historic $12 million settlement, which, as I understand, is the largest amount ever paid out for a black woman in a wrongful death killed by a police in America. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that this $12 million settlement is not justice. It's restitution. It's uh, an attempt to make this family as whole as possible in the wake of the tragic death of Brianna uh, by giving them money, civil payment. It's the only thing available to them in this moment while there's an epic failure for real justice, which would only come about when this officer is arrested and convicted. Pay attention. A manhunt continues for the gunman who shot two Los Angeles County sheriffs this past weekend. Surveillance footage actually shows the two deputies helping each other after being shot in the head from point-blank range. Let's take a look. This verified security footage circulating online shows the gruesome aftermath of an ambush. A female deputy cares for her injured colleague despite bleeding heavily after being shot in the jaw. And I want to be clear, what happened to those officers is not justice. Um, people talk about vigilante justice. Well, that would be uh, retaliating against the person that wronged you or your community specifically. Uh, running up on two random law enforcement members, that's not how we do it. And with Los Angeles County's $100,000 reward money pledge for any information leading to the arrest of the gunman, the L.A. County Sheriff is taking things a bit further, asking LeBron James to match the reward money. Let's watch. And I want to make a challenge. This challenge is to LeBron James. I want you to match that and that double that reward because I know you care about law enforcement and I appreciate that. But likewise, we need to appreciate that respect for life goes across professions, across races, creeds, 
And I'd like to see LeBron James step up to the plate and double that. Wildfires continue across California and Oregon, leaving as many as 35 people dead. And reports are saying an area the size of Connecticut has been burned completely. Here's the president in California responding to the recent events. Actually work together with that science. That science is going to be key because if we if we ignore that science and sort of put our head in the sand and think it's all about vegetation management, we're not going to succeed together protecting Californians. Okay, it'll start getting cooler. I you wish just, you just watch. I wish science agreed with you. <laughs> hey, well, I don't think science knows actually. And Democratic VP nominee Kamala Harris visited her home state of California. She had this to say. People have to understand that this is a, this is everyone's issue. I've talked with my colleagues who represent our neighboring states who are dealing with the same thing. And um, by extension, if you look at the tragedies that people on the Gulf Coast have faced because of other extreme weather conditions, I think most Americans should understand that we are all being impacted and, and people are dying because of these extreme climate changes. And Hurricane Sally is now a Category 2 storm. She's made her way to the Gulf, leaving half a million people without power and reportedly one person dead. Again, y'all, we want you to be safe. So if you can and you need to, please evacuate. And with Congress back in session, that is until they take another break before the election in just six weeks, currently the two chambers are working on another stimulus relief bill. Now, with both sides seemingly optimistic, the Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin says that the first payments could mobilize in a one-week turnaround. And if the first stimulus model was any indication, the first group of payments will go out again to those who filed their 2018 or 2019 tax returns and also provided direct deposit information to the IRS. So I just want to uh, encourage everybody, make sure you do provide that direct deposit information so you get a speedy payment, particularly because there might be delays because of all the issues with the post service. And while it's not entirely new news, we do want to reiterate this news. Effective September 4th, a national eviction moratorium was extended through the end of 2020. Y'all, this is very important. If you find yourself in this situation, we want you to know your rights and how to advocate for yourself. And in sports news, the first week of the NFL kicked off first and foremost with COVID tests, with all players and coaches successfully passing. Also, the NFL's first day of full games was this past Sunday, so we also saw a lot of social justice statements. Five teams, the Jets, Packers, Bills, Jaguars, and Dolphins, all stayed in the locker room during the national anthem. But some players were alone in their statements, like defensive lineman Duntari Pope, who was the only player for the Dallas Cowboys to take a knee during the anthem. But in one of the most unique moves of solidarity, both the Falcons and Seahawks kneeled during their opening kickoff. Let's take a look. Kick is away. It's out of the back of the end zone, and we had a feeling that this may be something that took place before the game today. Both teams are taking a knee after the kickoff. All right, we're going to take another quick break. Now, when we come back, June Ambrose and Claire Somers are going to join us about a conversation about black representation in fashion. But first, Naomi Osaka. She won her second U.S. Open championship this past weekend. Y'all, let's take a look at this young queen. You said from the beginning you had seven matches, seven masks, seven names. What was the message you wanted to send, Naomi? Um, well, what was the message that you got was more the question. I feel like the point is to make people start talking.
congratulations, the champion of the 2020 U.S. Open, Naomi Osaka. Please, Naomi, lift up your trophy. Long before hashtags were trending on Twitter, black folks were the algorithm, letting pop culture know what's hot. From movies to music to magazines. And in terms of fashion, in case anybody forgot, here are a few trends that were ghetto until proven fashionable. Our crowns. One of the most blatant and flagrant forms of appropriation comes from our hair. Now, we've seen a certain family try to keep up with the cornrows, but the runway too has taken our do-rags, wave caps, baby hair, and turned our crowns into hats. No cap. There's also our nails. Now, dating back to Mother Africa, decorative nails were worn by queens as a symbol of status. Fast forward to the 90s, when Olympic track star Flojo slayed and stayed ahead of everyone. And still today, nail designs are celebrated as works of art, highlighted in every way. And lastly, our clothes. There is no streetwear or designer fashion without the Harlem legend Dapper Dan. His bespoke designer clothes completely shaped hip-hop culture to what it is today. And thankfully, and rightfully, the major fashion houses were exposed for stealing his designs so the man could finally receive the flowers that he had long ago planted. So y'all know what it is. Black girl magic and black boy joy can be felt in every aspect of fashion. Because we don't just set the trends. We are the trends. Now and forever. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Now we're going to talk about the power of black representation in fashion. We've got two amazing heavy hitters joining us. They are really the best in the game. She's the founder and editor-in-chief of Fashion Bomb Daily, Claire Solmors. Also with us is the legendary June Ambrose, fashion designer and stylist to the stars. Welcome to you both. You queens look fabulous. I have to start. Claire, my dear, who are you wearing? Thank you. It's so good to be here. I'm wearing a designer called London Couture, established 1990. He's based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Love it. June, my dear, um, you always give us a great hat. Um, what, what else uh, would you like to tell us about your look for today? I mean, I, I'm wearing a black hat designer, milliner, Essentials, a guy named Rodney out of the Lower East Side. So, you know, both Claire and I are avid believers in supporting young black talent. So, yes. Claire, my dear, I am, I, I'm so impressed with you. Um, I always have been. I think it's so fantastic. Um, you're a whole Harvard graduate, um, and then you made the transition brilliantly and beautifully um, into really being an iconic uh, staple when it comes to modern fashion in general and in the culture. So tell us about the transition. I know at some point when you first launched uh, Fashion Bomb Daily, it was kind of a side hustle. I know a lot of entrepreneurs start that way. You were full-time at Real Simple, but eventually now uh, Fashion Bomb Daily is, is, is its own empire. Tell us about that pivot and how you went from side hustle to empire. 
Right. So as you mentioned, I majored in, I went to Harvard and majored in French and African-American studies and studied under yes. Henry Louis Gates and Cornel West. And in a lot of my courses, I learned about the unbalanced representations of people of color in the media. And I decided that I wanted to be the change I wanted to see in the world. So after I graduated, I did a series of internships in journalism, ultimately ended up at Real Simple Magazine, but always knew that I wanted to work in fashion. And for whatever reason, at the time, I kept hitting roadblock after roadblock. And so I decided oh. to start a blog. And this was at a time when we would not see women of color on the cover of magazines. Black designers oh, were not oh. getting acknowledged. Stylists were not getting acknowledged, even though we were making the culture. People like June were out there making these revolutionary, iconic fashion moments. And while they, they were acknowledged in some ways, they weren't, I feel like they weren't given their proper respect and due. And so it's been my mission through Fashion Bomb Daily to highlight our stories. And it has been 14 years since I started. And it went from a side hustle that I started at my job at Real Simple. And it's now become a force of its own. Um, so, Jude, I know before the show we were talking about that iconic um, look you created for Missy Elliott and her video um, with the, the the balloons, the trash bags, right? I was like, we're getting vibes of it from Claire right now. Yeah. Um, tell us some of your other favorite just videos or concerts that you worked on, uh, June, over the years. Um, well, definitely, I think the shiny suits that I did with uh, Diddy and Mace, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that on Revolt. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a whole other experience and it was our first time working together fucking at, at, on that level so it was interesting that was one of my favorites um all, missy elliott i've done like almost every last one of her videos in her career maybe except for two or three but like socket to me hit him with the he buster rhymes um pasta gavassier um uh put your hands where your eyes can see um jay all the jay-z's um videos recently the concert on the run tour that was one of my favorite uh, yeah. to design as well because mm -hmm. you know I, I got to put Jay in 11 looks 11 changes for a man a, a, you know an artist like himself <laughs> on the road with his with Beyonce. I want to ask you both this question um, and you brought it up Claire about the limitations of how our people have been represented historically in culture um, and, and particularly I want to talk about black women's representation right I also um, have a degree in, in black studies Claire from Chapel Hill and I would never forget I took a represent, representation in media class my sophomore year, and they talked about the kind of uh, tropes, the primary tropes for how black women show up in these spaces. And we both know, we all know who, what they are. It's uh, Mammy and Jezebel. Um, they always want to reduce black women to these hypersexual images or these totally asexual, non-desirable images. Um, and so I want to ask you both about how your work uh, just turns that on its head and and just expands. And I'll start with you, June, because I think your work with Missy is a, is a perfect example of it. Mm -hmm. Missy's look is so a part of her whole cultural impact. Yeah. And I'd love to know what maybe some of the conversations you had with her were um, in terms of the story she wanted to tell and how she wanted to show up as a black woman, unlike anything we've ever seen before or since. Right. I, you know, I think it's really important. That's a great question. It's a provocative question that we don't often have because you have really super confident artists like Lizzo now, who has openly said, because of Missy, she's able to be herself. Um, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the thing with, with Missy Elliott was not about trying to fit into, you know, a circle and she's a square peg. So it was really about 
allowing everyone else to conform and accept what they were seeing and, and experience the creativity and the art and knowing that it's more about the art form and less about the body parts. And, you know, it, it, being able to kind of, we never had to have the question, the conversation about being over-sexualized. That's a conversation I would have with Foxy Brown, mm. you know, in that time, in that era. Um, but with Missy, you know, the music was so strong. The music was so provocative. And it was really kind of trying to create a look that kind of matched that narrative. Um, Claire, I want to ask you, um, last year during Fashion Week, um, it was reported that it was the most diverse showing of fashion shows from the major fashion cities, um, Milan, Paris, uh, the States, things like that. Um, so it, it looked better. It looked more diverse. But y'all know that sometimes behind these labels, it's, it's not that same diversity. Um, so can you speak a little bit about your feeling on that, your reaction to that dichotomy or discrepancy? Or um, for you, is it is it okay if, if the visual, the runway represents that first and then the, the fashion houses themselves play catch up? No, I think that the goal is for us to have true diversity and inclusion behind the scenes and on the scenes. And what I can say just as a documentarian, a journalist, documenting this movement for the past 14 years, we have come a really long way. We still have a long way to go, but we have come a really long way when you think about, as you mentioned, the diversity in terms of designers who showed from Aliette, New York, to Fina Well, Laquan Smith. When I first started covering Fashion Week, there were two shows. There was the Baby Fat show and the Tracy Reese show. And now we can count them on two hands. And then the, the beautiful news that we had the other day of the CFDA award winners, including Christopher John Roberts, Pierre Moss with Kirby Jean Raymond, and also Telfar. So there, yeah. there are wonderful things that are happening. Do we have a long way to go? Definitely, but I do see some signs of, of progress and that that's what keeps me encouraged. And it shows that the fashion industry, although they've been lagging behind a little bit, from in from other industries, in my opinion, that, that we are making some progress, albeit slowly. Uh, Claire, June, uh, thank you both so much. The way you queens just beautifully represent the culture in the fashion industry, truly, you elevate it. We thank you and we appreciate you. Now, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're getting into Black excellence and entertainment. And Justin Sylvester is going to help me out this week. We've got more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Now it's time to get into this week's Black Excellence in Entertainment. Joining us this week is a very special guest. He's the co-host of E's Daily Pop and the host of E's Just the Sip podcast. Welcome to the show, Justin Sylvester. What's up, Jay? Nothing much. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you, my love. You look fantastic. Um, all right, so this first one isn't just about getting a bag. It's about making the bag itself and getting an award for it. Congrats to Telfar Clemens for winning the CFDA's Accessories of the Year Award. How excited are we about this, Justin? You know, I'm having a bittersweet moment with this because I've been on the wait list for that shopping bag for the last <laughs> six months. And I know now that that man has won this award. It's going to be another six months. You are Honey, absolutely you correct. That bag no time soon. Yeah. Uh-uh. <laughs> uh-uh. But I'm happy for him. I'm happy for him. Absolutely. I mean, you talk about a winning season, right? And, you know, uh, the peanut gallery was calling it like a Bushwick uh, Birkin and all this. And now, now look at you. 
Okay, from Fashion Awards to TV Awards, more congrats are in order for Charlemagne the God. He is winning alongside another one of my dear friends, Bakari Sellers. Their film, While I Breathe, I Hope, won a regional Emmy in the documentary topical category. Thrilled for these two. Um, they are friends in real life and they work together beautifully as well. Congratulations to them both. What do we think, Justin? You know, I just think that Charlemagne is having the year of his life now. I've always said mm -hmm. that this man is like the St. Peter of hip hop. You got to pass through his ass to get to the promised land. And he has been Listen. such an architect when it comes to rap and appreciation and what that culture is. And I'm just so happy that he's taking it from the radio to more mediums. More Charlemagne good news. Uh, Charlemagne, Ooh. of course, this week launched his Black Effect podcast network. Yes, indeed. And it's in partnership with iHeartMedia. Uh, the network aims to create shows for Black listeners across all genres, social media, pop culture, mental health, sports, news, and comedy. Charlemagne's winning. That man, that man is like the Wayne Brady of radio. He has his hands in everything and good for him. But what he's doing is saying, there are more people like me. I'm not going to be selfish. I'm going to hand this baton to up and coming guys and people that have been in the industry that have not been heard. That's what giving back is about. And that's what it means when you continue the legacy. Perfectly said. Um, the only thing I'll add is simply, I think it's very important that people note in this moment what you said. Um, all black creatives, all creatives have an opportunity to just continue um, charting their own course as a solo act. But when you mm. open yourself up to collaborations, right? Yes. With other top level talent, um, now it's not just one star in our universe, it's a galaxy. So 100%. 100%. Helping create that galaxy. Absolutely. All right, Netflix has acquired the rights to Malcolm and Marie. Now, it's a romantic drama starring Zendaya and John David Washington. Netflix reportedly mm -hmm. outbid a lot of other big spending networks mm -hmm, with the sound price tag of $30 million. That is massive, uh, but well-earned, right, Jay? But you know what? I, this is what I love about Netflix. When all the Black Lives Matter movement started, Netflix was like, guess what? We're going to give y'all a billion dollars and we're going to start showing and appreciating and streaming Black content. And they put their money where their mouth is. This is what we talk about when we say, okay, give people time to then start showing what the pledge is going to look like. Netflix is doing that. And you know what? Hats off to John David, because it is not easy to walk in Denzel's shadow. That is the last mother shadow that I would want to walk in. <laughs> no, yes, indeed. And he's really brilliant. Um, I mean, I've seen him in several things. Um, of course, uh, the Black Klansman being my favorite role of his thus mm. far. My brother is winning Zendaya. She's a goddess. I mean, this young woman is up right before our very eyes, right? And and just congratulations to both of them. And I agree. Congratulations to Netflix for recognizing the value of Black content, Black consumerism, um, and really, like you said, putting their money where their mouth is. So sources are saying Jonathan Majors, yes, is going to enter the Marvel franchise and play supervillain Clay in the next Ant-Man film. Now, many people know Majors from his recent roles in Jordan Peele's Lovecraft Country, as well as the Spike Lee film, The Five Bloods. Congrats to Jonathan. I saw Five Bloods not long ago. Epic. That brother, breakthrough performance. Mm. Congrats to him. Right, right Justin? Mm -hmm. You know what? Congrats to him. And, you know, 
it's crazy because we just lost Chadwick Boseman and we just lost a, such a big representation in the Marvel universe to have somebody get back in there, you know, and give us more representation, especially somebody who worked with Chadwick Boseman and who knew the man. Aligning. This is yeah. aligning. It's like, this is kind of a blessing in disguise, but I'm just so sad that these two brothers didn't get the chance to celebrate together on this. Oh, such a beautiful point. No, indeed. And like you said, the only uh, silver lining here is that um, he worked so beautifully with Chadwick. And so we can only assume that he will carry that legacy um, throughout his run with the Marvel franchise. Yes. So congratulations to him. Yeah. Now, lastly, tomorrow is the premiere of the film Antebellum. I've been waiting on this movie, Justin, starring Janelle Monet. Now, this is set for home on demand release. Janelle Monet plays two women in two different eras. So she plays Eden, an enslaved woman in pre-Civil War South, as well as Veronica, a modern day character who's a feminist author and cultural influencer. I have seen these trailers, Justin. This thing is going to be Epic. Are we here for it? I'm here for a double bag. <laughs> this is what I love about Janelle Monet. Janelle Monet is, and follow me down this rabbit hole because it's going to take me a minute. But every generation has that one person who, no matter what age, what race, you just love that person. Like white people, people weren't down with rap. But when Snoop Dogg came on the scene, they were like, I can get down with this. Estelle came on the scene with American Boy. They're like, yeah, I can get down with this. Usher, yeah. Tiffany Haddish, yes. Janelle Monet is going to bring such an amazing story to theaters and to homes. And she is one of those artists that invites people in. Her fans are of every age, every demographic, every race. And to know that people are going to see this unbelievable film with this unbelievable message is so touching to me. So shout out to Janelle Monet, who has kept it 100 and kept it open her whole career. Yeah, she's really captivating on screen. So I'm here for Antebellum this weekend. I am watching it. All right, you killed it. As always, listen, Justin, thank you so much for helping me out with this week's Black Excellence and Entertainment. Now we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Stacey Abrams joins us to discuss Black representation in politics. We've got more Revolt Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News. Now we're only six weeks out from the general election, so we have to talk about the importance of black representation in politics. Here to help me out uh, is a politician that needs no introduction. She made history when she became the first black woman to be the gubernatorial nominee for any major party in United States history. And she's currently doing phenomenal work combating voter suppression with her organization, Fair Fight Action. Welcome to the show, Ms. Stacey Abrams. Thank you for having me. Uh, Stacy, I want to get started talking to you a bit about your career before you hit the national stage as a state legislator. You were in Georgia State Representative's house for over 10 years. Talk to me a bit about what that experience was like, uh, how many other Black people you served with, and how important that representation was. I joined the legislature in 2006, uh, two years after Democrats lost the majority, but during the rise of Black membership in the legislature. Four years later, I became the Democratic leader and part of my responsibility was helping to navigate this racial transition where more and more of the elected officials were African-American. But part of the responsibility was to recognize that even in our districts, we were representing multiracial communities and we needed to be responsive to the needs of the entire state. And I think one of the most important parts of that representation 
comes from being a minority, understanding that while you may not have the majority in power, we've learned very early on how to navigate that power, but more importantly, how to look out for the marginalized and the disadvantaged, no matter where they sit. Absolutely. So one thing that's interesting to me, Stacey, is that when we look at the United States House of Representatives, we actually have about 12% Black representation in the House, which is pretty close to the overall Black populist representation in the country at around 13%. But when we look at the United States Senate, that is very different. We actually only have three Black senators in the entire country. We know they're Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, and Tim Scott. Uh, How do you reconcile that huge discrepancy in terms of Black representation in the House versus the Senate? And what can be done about it? And that goes back to my point about being able to represent not simply people who share our racial heritage, but people who share our needs and our values. One of the challenges that face Black uh, candidates who try to run statewide is that districts are typically drawn to reflect the racial composition of a community And that is why we've seen, as the Black population has grown, we've seen more and more Black elected officials. When we get to the statewide level, there is not a single state in the United States that's majority Black, which means what we're asking of candidates and what we're asking of voters is to understand that while we are deeply embedded and entrenched in terms of representing our own uh, racial heritage, we are capable of representing the broadest swath of Americans. And when that happens, when we have been able to demonstrate that, we've gotten some stellar leadership. So now I do want to talk about voter suppression. And Stacey, you are uniquely positioned to speak on the matter. Uh, So please take us back to your gubernatorial run and the fact that ultimately Brian Kemp was awarded the governorship there. And I say awarded because, frankly, there's no evidence, no conclusive evidence that he won that election electorally. And that will forever be an outstanding question. Um, So talk a bit about how voter suppression directly impacted uh, your race and what you've done to uh, work on eradicating voter suppression ever since. Voter suppression exists when there are actions taken to prevent you from voting or dissuade you from voting. And we have to be very clear that what we saw in Georgia in 2018 was textbook voter suppression. The purging of more than one and a half million or 1.4 million voters the oversight of closure of 214 precincts, the holding hostage of 53,000 registrations, the rejection of ballots at unprecedented levels. We know that there were people who wanted to be heard who were denied agency and denied their citizenship right of being able to vote. And to to add harm, it was overseen by the person responsible for protecting their right to vote. The fact that the election superintendent in the state of Georgia was the contestant, the referee, and the scorekeeper is deeply problematic. But more problematic for me was the fact that he tried to argue that because more people voted, it, dissuade, it dispelled the possibility that he'd done something wrong, which is to say that you know because more people get in the water, there are fewer sharks. That's not true. The sharks remain. And as long as we have men like Brian Kemp and unfortunately his successor, uh, Secretary of State Brad Rassenberger, who are willing to throw over the rights of citizenship in order to protect their power, voter suppression will continue. But my mission is to say that it's not about a single politician winning an election. It's about the right of citizens in the United States who are eligible to vote, being able to cast that ballot and know that ballot gets counted. 
so important. And, and Stacey, you know I'm a proud member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. And one of the things that, that we're doing is right now we've got over 800 SORs that are also attorneys, right, that will be doing the work of, of voter protection in the form of being poll watchers, right? So there's poll workers, and, and that's important, but also even those workers have to be monitored and make sure they're doing their jobs right. So that's where we step in as, as an extra layer of voter protection as poll watchers, and we make sure that people, voters, are not being arbitrarily turned away, uh, and that they indeed have the opportunity to have their votes counted and their voices heard uh, in this uh, opportunity to exercise democracy. And speaking of democracy, um, before I let you go, you have to tell us about the documentary that you uh, are producing and that your story is so eloquently told in. And that is All In, The Fight for Democracy, uh, that is now streaming on Amazon Prime as of tomorrow. And uh, it, it does important work. So tell us about the doc and what we can learn from it. After the 2018 election, a few filmmakers approached me about a documentary about my race. I wasn't interested in that. I was there. Didn't really need the reminder. But what came to mind for me was that working particularly with the young people, for some of them, that was the first time they'd ever really experienced what voter suppression can look like. And there was this need to remind some of our history and to educate others about it. And so the goal of the documentary was to take this historical lens and apply it to the history of voter suppression, not simply as a motivator to say that voter suppression exists, but also as a reminder that we've pushed through it before. We need to remember that this is a nation that has tried to deny particularly black voters agency since its inception. And every time, whether it's the 15th Amendment, uh, the vestiges of the 19th Amendment when, women, when black women were finally included in 1965, or even the evisceration of the Voting Rights Act, despite the attacks on our right to vote, we persevere and we do so with other groups, other communities who face these challenges. And so all a love story about my belief in democracy. The filmmakers Liz Garbus and Lisa Cortez do an extraordinary job, but we need to remember that we have the right to vote and our fight for democracy can't stop. The one piece I'll actually add is that part of our democracy that we really hope people are focusing on is the census. The 2020 census is about how we fight for the next decade for the right to be seen, the right to be heard. And so please also fill out your census at my2020census.gov, or you can go to 844-330-2020, or you can go to allinforvoting.com to get more information about how you can make your plan to vote and be a part of our democracy, be a part of our fight for democracy, because it belongs to us and no one should be able to take it away. Stacy, thank you so much for your insight and all the incredible work you're doing at Fair Fight Action. We hope you'll come back and see us soon. All right, y'all, so on that note, we have got to keep our feet on the gas for November 3rd. See, don't think about it as election day. It's not about a single day. It's election season. So November 3rd, it's actually a six-week process that has already started. So if you haven't already started making your plan to vote, start planning. Because see, y'all, it's not just about the presidency. It's about the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives. That's where the actual lawmaking gets done. All right, so here's what I want you all to do. I want you to go to YouTube right now and watch Killer Mike's speech at the Revolt Summit in Atlanta almost a year ago. Fast forward to minute 43 and 30 seconds in and listen to what this man is talking about when he talks about the seven years after the Civil War ended. It's called the Reconstruction Era. And he goes on to talk about the surprising rates in which black folk represented ourselves in both chambers of Congress and even as governors. But see, more importantly than that, he stresses the power of the representation that we held. 
No, y'all, we have way more resources today than we did then. But see, that only matters if we are willing to start the work of November 3rd today. Because see, if we wait till November 3rd, it will be too late. For Revolt Black News, I'm Ebony K. Williams. See you next time.